Hello again, welcome back to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science of luxury. Before we start today, we have a very quick but exciting announcement. We've just launched our new website and science communication endeavor. The website is erevnamedia.com. Erevna Media is a website where we will host all things Luxi, the episodes, show notes, etc., and where Dr. Demos and I will ha- both have blogs and we'll share a science that we think is fun and interesting. So please visit the website and subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the nerdy fun. All right, let's get to the show. Okay. So after a brief departure for our first anniversary, we're back to talking about visual art. In episode one, we talked about how we as humans see color. Today, we're going to explore how colors are created, specifically for paints. I have two books that I've read recently that I'd like to recommend. Demos, if that's okay. I'm happy to hear those recommendations. It's The Secret Lives of Color by Cassia St. Clair, which was actually actually recommended by the amazing graphic designer who did our website, and Color, A Natural History of the Palette by Victoria Finley. Both of these books are incredibly interesting and entertaining journeys into pigments and color. Where do we begin? Well, we can talk a little bit about the background of what is paint. So, yeah, should we start at the beginning? Yeah, sure, let's go. This, as far as we know... Almost since the beginning of history, people have been drawing and using pigments to depict scenes of life, etc. The oldest art is thought to be red markings in a cave in South Africa that were created 73,000 years ago. And there's also cave paintings in Spain thought to be around 64,000 years old. Now, for reference, one of the most famous cave paintings, the Lascaux Caves in France, are only only 17,000 years old. Now, there are much older caves in France, but these are the ones that have artwork in them, right? Most people, when you think cave art, when you think of that picture of like the bison or the buffalo, mm-hmm. it's usually something from Lascaux caves. Okay. But there are much older caves both in France and also in Spain and also in Indonesia. Okay. So what pigments would these early artists have used? They would use things they could find in nature. So there would be red. So iron oxide or hematite will give you red and black, like charcoal and manganese oxide. Ochre was also a huge pigment in both ancient and more modern art. And ochre is a natural clay. It's a mixture of ferric oxide and clay and sand. And the colors range from yellow to deep orange and brown. It also be red. So how do you think paint works, Demos? Have you ever thought about what makes a paint a paint? I guess if you've ever painted a side of a house, you want the paint to stick to your paintbrush. Mm-hmm. And you want it to have a nice, thick, deep color. And you want it to wear well. And you also want it to dry quickly. Yeah, like that would be important. Pigment powders need some sort of binder to be able to become paint. Because you can't really okay. just slap a bunch of powder on the side of your house. It's not going to stick. The type of paint dictates the type of binder. And I think the best pigment binder combination to illustrate what's going on molecularly is oil paint. So binders are all polymers, which is a fancy way of saying something that's made up of large molecules. And these large molecules get a little tangled up when they're in a solution. And this tangling adds strength to the paint. It makes a a bit of a matrix. So you have the binder as a matrix of large molecules and the paint pigments spread out within the binder. That suspension of the pigment in the binder actually allows for different pigments to be mixed to change color. It'd be like if you had a spider web and, and the wherever the webs crossed, that would be the color, like the pink pigment. I don't think be. it's that regular, but 
Okay. I mean, that's like a weird, if you have something that's that regular, it's more of like a crystal lattice structure. Okay, yeah. Solutions are not quite as regular because the yeah, medium, solutions. yeah, the medium's a little more fluid. Yeah. But the binder allows the pigment particles to stick together and to stick to whatever surface is being painted. Interesting side note for oil paints, the pigment is added to a drying oil with linseed being the most common. As the linseed oil absorbs oxygen just by hanging around, it will be converted from a liquid to a hard permanent coating. And this is a version of a thermoplastic mechanism. So it essentially turns into plastic. Yeah, a bit. Like if you've ever, I mean, I guess most people don't go around touching oil paintings because you're not generally frowned upon in the museum. I think it's fun. Yeah, good luck with it. Go to the Louvre and try touching something and see what happens. But if you do have a chance, if you know somebody who has an oil painting, to touch it, it does feel a bit plasticky on the outside. In addition to the pigment and a binder, an extender can also be added, and these are large pigment particles that will improve the adhesion of the paint and strengthen it. And lastly, you have to add a bit of a solvent, because if you add all this thick stuff, it's not going to be very easy to spread the paint. So you need to be able to dissolve it. Dissolve it a little bit, just a little bit so you can spread the paint. And then obviously there's gradations of that, right? There's paints Mm -hmm. that are thicker and paints that are thinner. You know, additional chemicals can be added depending what type of paint it is. For example, latex paint that you use in your house used to have rubber in it. That's why it's called latex paint. Yeah, it's like I'm sitting here scratching my head how you mix rubber into a solvent, but you can. You can. If it, if it dissolves, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's on your wall and it's rubbery. And if you've ever peeled old paint it, off of walls, it's a little walls, elastic. It feels very elastic. So, yeah. yeah. So, to summarize, paint is pigment or color, the binder, which is the glue, the extenders, which help the adhesion, and the solvents that make it spreadable. And we could go on and on about the chemistry behind paint manufacturing. But we're here to talk about the color. So to start us off, Demos is going to talk to us about the color black. Yeah, well, I mean, i got to thank Alexis for giving me four ways to think about what it takes to make paint. So that's good. Now, originally, paints were based on charcoal, as Alexis alluded to with the early cave paintings. So tips of burnt torches with resin or with animal fat would have been some of the first paintbrushes and different charcoal pigments were made by burning different woods and even different animal products, each of which would have produced a different tone, but Mm. essentially either shades of brown or black. The charcoal itself would be ground and then mixed uh, with that animal fat, and then now you've got a pot of of pigment that will kind of stay and stain the material because you're essentially staining something I mean, it is quite amazing how long this have lasted and you know we never we're not even going to talk about stains no that one, would be but, interesting yeah but you know like staining wood for example is a and his example is essentially painting wood right and, and leaving something on there so um one of the things in my research that i found was beyond just burning wood or charcoal um, there were other things that were burnt that created amazingly high quality colors like vine black it was produced in Roman times by burning cut branches of grapevines. It could be produced by burning crushed grapes, um, and, which were collected and dried in an oven, maybe even like raisins. According to the historian Vitruvius, the deepness and richness of the black produced corresponded to the quality of the wine that what, was produced by the grapes. It's an early wine grading scale. Yeah, yeah. Who, Before I, you got into vintage and year. And, I would have never have guessed that you could have made... 
a wine that wine making would have resulted in in making paint but that that's pretty fascinating yeah the the finest wines produced a black with a bluish tinge or even the color of indigo and so these were very interesting colors yeah. and the Sanino Sanini who we will talk about a lot this 15th century painter mostly because he wrote a book, a whole book on how to make pigments during yeah. that era, and it's very yeah. fascinating. Yeah, the famous handbook. I, I think, um, I never knew that there was an artist handbook for paint color. The black, which is made from the tendrils of vines, these tendrils need to be burned, and when they have been burned, throw some water onto them, put them out, then mull them in the same way as the other black. And this is a lean and black <laughs> pigment, which is one of the perfect pigments that we use. You know, this, this puts a Unquote. whole new spin on those whole wine and paint nights that people are fond of now. <laughs> different civilizations burned different plants to produce their charcoal pigments. The Inuit of Alaska used wood charcoal mixed with the blood of seals to paint masks and wooden objects. The Polynesians burned coconuts to produce their pigment. Nice. I, I bet that one smelled good. That one, yeah, yeah. Lamp black was used as a pigment for painting in frescoes as the dye for fabrics and in some societies for making tattoos. Ooh. So apparently... Gonna, I think we're going to do an episode on tattoos. So old uh, Sanino Sanini there described <laughs> how it was made during the Renaissance. You take a lamp full of linseed oil. There it is. There's that linseed oil. So useful. Mm-hmm. Fill the lamp with oil and then light the lamp. Then place it lit under a thoroughly clean pan and make sure that the flame from the, pan, the lamp is two or three fingers from the bottom of the pan. The smoke that comes from the flame will hit the bottom of the pan and gather, becoming thick. Wait a bit, take the pan, brush off the pigment onto a paper or into a pot or something. And it's not necessary to mull or grind it either because it's such a very fine, dark black dust. Then refill the lamp with the oil. Put it under the same pan like this several times and in the way make as much pigment as you need. Think about all the money you could save just following Santino, Sanino Sanini's advice. You know what's interesting? Because I was actually just thinking that lamp black would have been more of an expensive pigment than charcoal black because you don't Linseed get as oil. much. Well, no, you don't, and you don't get as much out of it. Like you can burn a whole bunch of wood and get some charcoal as opposed to very meticulously collecting the smoke that gathers at the bottom of a lamp. Well, artists are meticulous, so... This is true. Yeah, so, and at that time, the artists didn't necessarily make their own pigments. There were color chemists, essentially colorists, which no. Sanini was one, and you would go to these colorists to purchase the paints. Yeah, so if you're you're not a great artist, you can at least be a great colorist. Yes. And throw a little chemistry. And probably make more money. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. Now, ivory black, uh, Mars black, two other interesting blacks. We're yeah. going to talk a little bit about ivory first. It's, as just as it sounds, burning ivory. Hmm. which would have been the tusks of animals. Those poor elephants, they never get a break, do they? No, not this time. Not in art, either. (sighs) That resulting charcoal powder that would have come from burning ivory would have been mixed again with oil. Mm -hmm. The color is still made today, but ordinary animal bones are substituted. Yeah, I think it's called bone black. Yeah. Mars black, on the other hand, is a little bit more of a modern black Hmm. created from iron oxide or rust. Okay. And then... Synthesizing that iron oxide with other 
metals, um, other like manganese or a chromium, mm -hmm. can actually create even a wide array of interesting colors. I picture that color rust, yeah. that orangey red. And it's yeah. interesting that you can also make a black out of it. Now imagine separating those chemicals out and making it defined, and then you can get those beautiful colors. Now with ink, um, which is obviously such an important pigment, the first known ones were made by the Chinese and date back to the 23rd century BC. Wow. They used natural plant dyes and minerals such as graphite ground with water and applied with an ink brush. Early Chinese ink, similar to modern ink stick, have been found dating to about 256 BC at the end of the Warring States period. They were produced from soot, usually produced by burning pine wood mixed with animal glue. To make ink from an ink stick, the stick was continuously ground against an ink stone with a small quantity of water, and this created a dark liquid, which was then applied to an ink brush. Artists and calligraphists would vary the thickness of the resulting ink and reduce or increase the intensity of the ink grinding. So all of this gives you the ability to control the shading mm -hmm. and making subtle or dramatic effects in brush painting. Now, India ink, or Indian ink in British English, mm. is a black ink once widely used for writing and printing and now more commonly used for drawing. Yeah, I think most people have heard of India ink. Yeah, yeah. I, if you go to an art store, every one of these terms will be quite obvious yeah. uh, along the, the aisles of various inks you could buy. Comic books and comic strips is an example of a place where India ink is used. The techniques of making it probably came from China. India ink has been used in India since at least the 4th century BC, where it was called mazi. In India, the black color of the ink came from a bone char, tar, and pitch, and other substances together yeah. to create that. Yeah. Cool. Um, ancient Romans had a black writing ink they called atramentum librarium. The name came from the Latin word atrare, which meant to make something black. And interestingly, it's the same root as the English word atrocious. Oh. It's uh, usually made like India ink from soot. Mm -hmm. The one variety called um, Atramentum elephantium was made by the burning of the ivory of elephants. Yes, poor like elephants. And, um, and before we go into sort of modern ways, the gall nuts were used to make a fine black writing ink, iron gall ink, also known as iron gall nut ink or oak. Gall ink. Yeah, those are gall nuts. Sound weird, but they're essentially oak. Oak nuts. nuts yeah. yeah, and and uh, I imagine then the oil or whatever is in like when you think of walnut oil, you can use it to treat other woods. It's very stable, very shelf stable yeah. oil, and it's it can last a long time on a surface, which makes for a good paint, right? So. This purple-black or brown-black ink was made from iron salts and tannic acids from the gall nut. It was a standard for writing and drawing ink in Europe from about the 12th century and has remained in use well into the 20th century. Nice. Some good lasting power there. So, indeed. And, and you'll see that those inks continue to this day, obviously, mm -hmm. to be available. But in adding to that, we have now more modern inks, for example, various types of iron oxides, whether Fe3O4, which is supposedly one of the most widely used pigments in the world, <laughs> and a variety of colors right now, uh, red, yellow, black, compound brown, orange, blue, and green even, can be made from these iron oxide pigment variations. But in order to get the blackest black, we need to use nanotech. 
Yeah, we you know ticks come up a few different times on the podcast. Yeah, and and go figure. Even in paint, this um, seems like one of the more successful applications, though. This one is pretty spectacular, but in a way you would never have thought. So, who would need a dark surface beyond anything darker? And that would be astronomers. When you make a telescope, say, I was going to say people decorating for Halloween, but clearly that was the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good example. But, um, you know, there, I think black velvet or felt. Oh, goths. goths. Goths, yes. But felt works so well for all of that. No, it doesn't. You know why? Because if you happen to have a rainy Halloween, then the felt will run. And I learned that from personal experience. Mm. No felt on Halloween. But it makes you look even scarier. Not if, you, not if you're wearing a blue poodle skirt and your legs too blue and you have to spend hours in the tub washing them off. No, that is something I would not have known. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, now, with carbon nanotubes, you would have never have had to worry about that. Exactly. I should have told my mom to make it out of carbon nanotubes. Well, if you are a, a telescope or an astronomy uh, nerd, mm-hmm. you would have also have used carbon nanotubes, maybe on the inside of your telescope, to make it beyond black. Because what's great about excellent quality telescopes is not having extra reflections. Right. All you want is the light to come in the front, hit the mirror, mirror. and then, then all be concentrated yes. into your eyeball. That makes eyeball. sense, yeah. There is this amazing black called Vanta Black. Oh, I love that name. Which is... It sounds it, like it, a sci-fi series. It is. And it Vanta is very black. sci-fi because it actually stands for something. So the makers say that it can absorb 99.965% of light that hits it, Oof. which makes it 100 times blacker than what NASA uses right now. for just That's for almost codes. black hole level, isn't it? It could be black hole level because what does what do black holes do? They suck they abs- in all the light. They suck in all the light. You can't see anything. Imagine if you could simply paint a black hole. <laughs> Imagine if you had a house that was painted like a wall was painted in Vanta black. I think that would be very disorienting, it but also be. very cool. Yeah, there would be. I think people would feel like they could, like, you know how people sometimes walk into panes of glass that are too clean? Yeah. I feel like people would think they could just walk into the Vanta Black and it would be a yeah. portal to another dimension. Yeah, it would be. It would be, it would mess with you because there would be no reflection to your eyes. Your eyes don't see a wall painted black. They see a place where no light escapes. I think most of us can comprehend that because when we look at black paint, there's usually a finish, a matte finish or a glossy finish or some sort of reflection off the paint. So that's really weird. Or even if a car was painted that. But be careful. You don't want it painted in that something because sunlight, for example, puts about a thousand watts per square meter of heat onto the earth or, or photons onto the earth. Any of these colors, these nanotube colors... Take all of those photons, and they, when they get trapped, they don't just sit there being trapped. No, they don't no, like no, that. No, they convert their energy to heat. And so that car would turn into a solar oven very quickly, <laughs> solar pizza oven. Now, Vanta stands for something interesting. It's vertically aligned carbon nanotube arrays. Mm. So you're essentially painting a carpet onto your wall if you're painting it with Vanta below. <laughs> and so that's an example of a great color option. And apparently you can now buy Vanta Black online. I'm it's sure called it's Black 3.0, I think it is. Mm. And um, if you research that, it's a, it's a version of Vanta Black that's available for consumer purchase. And so that's uh, all I have for the color black. That was really interesting, Demos. It's not that expensive, Vanta Black. Maybe it's expensive for a pigment, but I thought it would be more expensive. Maybe it's because it's not the actual nano What one. website are you on? Looking at the world's blackest paint. <laughs> Oh, wow, they paint an apple. 
It does look like Invesible, just, and it looks like the apple has been cut in half. Yeah, that's, that's just messing with we my We recommend brain. you Google this one. It's pretty interesting. Since you did black, I thought I'd do blue. Which is a more exciting color. I think it's yeah, a great color. It is a great color. It's actually widely reported to be a favorite color by both men and women. Mm. Yes. And it's not hard to see why. The skies are blue. The ocean's blue. Blue stirs up feelings of calm and serenity. Um, but blue pigment has been a struggle for artists for a very long time because natural blue pigments are very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't like go grind up the ocean. So I found a couple of pigments. There's a long list, but I've chose some of the ones that were my favorites. Let's take a trip back in history. Let's get a little time machine. Go back to ancient Egypt around the time that the pyramids are being built. Okay. And Egyptians art was very important. There's a lot of religious symbolism. There's a lot of, you know, the pharaohs immortalize themselves in artwork. And a lot of color. And a lot of color. And blue was really important to the ancient Egyptians because of the symbolism of sky and water. You know, the Nile was brought life to ancient Egypt. It's only crazy, but I bet they make a real big effort to make the color blue. They do. The only source at the time was lapis lazuli, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and it wasn't a very good source because when you grind up lapis lazuli, you're actually grinding up a whole bunch of minerals in addition to the lazurite, which is the blue. So you usually get a gray powder. So it's a crystalline mineral that you can remove from the ground, lapis lazuli. Yeah, it's a semi-precious stone. Okay. I actually have a piece of it. It's very pretty. Okay. It's this deep blue with these streaks of like gold and white in it. But when you crush that, it turns gray. Okay. So the Egyptians invented a way to manufacture the pigments. This is the first manufactured blue pigment. And you would take some sand, some copper for minerals like azurite or malachite, some uh, natron, which is a mixture of sodium compounds. And you would heat these to between 800 and 900 degrees Celsius. And what you would get out of it is this opaque blue glass, some carbon dioxide, and some water vapor. And that blue glass could be crushed up and mixed with egg whites and made into a paint. What's very interesting is that it's very consistent. If you look at the blues from when it started being used throughout the Egyptian empire, it's almost the same color blue. And so to get that level of consistency from a process is really quite a feat. And we're even generate those level that level of heat. Like, yes. Like that's that's not campfire heat. No, it's not campfire heat. Celsius. Right. You know, that's glass making heat. Yeah. So within this um, blue glass, there's regular blue crystals that and unreacted quartz and some glass. And interestingly, the specimens of Egyptian blue that have been tested have an excess of silica in them. And they think that the Egyptians did that deliberately to make the texture of the paint a little bit harder. So it would okay. last, I think, it's a little bit easier to paint um, stone and stuff when you have a little bit thicker of a paint. Okay. Yeah. And this blue was so popular that it stormed the market and was prevalent throughout the Roman Empire as well. In fact, the recipe that we have for Egyptian blue is from a Roman source, and there is no ancient Egyptian source of the recipe, written down at least. No, it's too bad. Yeah. Maybe in hieroglyphics one day. No, no yeah, maybe. They haven't found one yet. Um, but so let's... Get our little time machine and fast forward to 2006. Okay. And say you're um, a conservation scientist. This one was, his name is Giovanni Verri, and he was looking at Greek marble basin. Mm-hmm. And he thought, hey, you know, maybe I'll just put some fluorescent light over it and see what happens. Yes. Do you know what he saw? No. The blue pigments in the vessel were glowing. And this is the first indication that Egyptian blue emits infrared radiation. So it actually changed the wavelength of the ultraviolet light and re-broadcast it as 
um, infrared light. Yes. That's amazing. There's a lot of, not a, not just a lot of chemistry, but a lot of physics going on there. Yeah. And the property allows scientists to get a better idea of what ancient artifacts look like when they were not ancient. And it provides the first clues that items such as the Elgin marbles, which were stolen by the British from the Parthenon, were in fact painted and not the monochromatic white that you see them today. They're quite brightly colored. Just imagine all the research and and amazing discoveries of color that could occur yeah. if the Elgin marbles could be released for at least research. Yeah. I mean, what we really want them to do is come back to Greece, but sorry. So, about that. <laughs> but there may be uh, some sort of side benefit to this because infrared radiation has a greater penetration in human tissues and the luminescence of Egyptian blue is very lasting. And so that they could use this dye for biomedical imaging. Oh, wow. And it would be less toxic than some of the ones that they use now, which are different kind of radioactive. Okay, yeah. The next one I'm going to talk about is ultramarine. And when I started the... ancient Egypt. Going back to ancient Egypt. (laughs) And like I said, there was this stone, lapis lazuli, and you could theoretically grind it up to make a blue pigment. But at the time, it had to be very, 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 very pure because if it had any mineral inclusions in it, it would not give you blue. Okay. And so... That got to be a bit of a pain. So in the 13th century, the um, the process was invented to extract the lazurite, the blue component of lapis lazuli, from the rest of the stone. And this was used extensively throughout the 14th and 15th century. So if you look at um, Titian or Michelangelo, Raphael, girl with the, the, the pearl earring. Vermeer. Vermeer, thank you. That blue is ultramarine. But it was so expensive that artists would put into their contracts when they uh, got commissions how much ultramarine they thought that they needed to complete a painting. And okay. it seems, and there's like, they think that there's some paintings from Michelangelo that are uncompleted because he ran out of money to buy ultramarine. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a beautiful blue, though. However, it is a bit sensitive to acid and acid vapors. It turns it into hydrogen sulfide, and so it's really not good at being outdoors. Mm. Not a fresco paint. Okay. Because ultramarine is so expensive... People wanted a a cheaper equivalent. And one of the ones that eventually came around is called Prussian Blue. And I like Prussian Blue because it's one of those happy scientific accidents. Well, sort of depends on your viewpoint, but it is an accident. Okay. So in the 1700s, a paint maker, a colorist, was in his shop mixing away to make red pigment from cochineal, which are dried bugs. We'll talk about that maybe in the red podcast. Yeah, dried red bugs. And I don't think they're actually that red. I think they just make a red dye. Oh, wow. Yeah. But cochineal sounds like kokino, which is the Greek word for red. Yes. Good. Oh, well. Well done. So a little animal blood got into his potash, which is a potassium source for making this dye. Mm-hmm. And he said, eh, it's fine. I'm making red dye. Blood is red. Should be okay, right? Yeah. So he continues the process. Like a rat running around his studio or something? Oh, who knows? Oh, man. <laughs> Maybe the butcher's next door and he got a little overexcited. Yeah, yeah. There's that. <laughs> Don't eat at your desk. No, don't eat your desk. So instead of red, though, he made a very deep blue. And it's Prussian blue. And this is because there's the iron in the blood, or any iron con- in Sorry. Prussian blue, is between two different valency states. So the electrons are kind of vibrating up and down. So they mm-hmm. move from one orbit to another. And this makes a strong absorption at, in the orange-red part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And so what you see is a very deep bluish-red. I mean, deep down, everything we're doing is messing with the electromagnetic spectrum. Yes. 
So today the color is used in um, printing inks, but it is also a very powerful antidote for heavy metal poisoning. No kidding. Yeah. So you could just drink some up and get Well, I don't ready. know. I think I would probably want to do it with a doctor because I think if you drink yeah. too much, that's probably not a good idea yeah. either, right? But it's also used as a stain for histology slides. Prussian oh, okay. blue. So you can stain things Prussian blue to see various aspects of a tissue or a cell. There's a lot of medical applications mm-hmm. for it too. Wow. Yes. And my final one is a bit like yours. There's a new blue. A new blue. It has been 200 years since a new blue dye has come onto the market. This one was also a happy accident. In 2009, researchers at Oregon State University discovered a new blue pigment. They were looking for novel materials for electronics. So they like used semiconductors or something. Yeah, because they used oxide solutions. So used an oxide solution containing yttrium, indium, and oxygen, and then one containing yttrium, manganese, and oxygen. And they heated those to over 1,000 degrees Celsius, and they got this bright blue powder. Fortunately, one of the scientists, the lead scientist, Dr. Subramanian, uh, was worked in a paint chemist. Okay. So he understood the value of what they had just created. Yeah. So it's called yin min, and it's... The chemical components, yttrium, indium, and manganese, oxide in this case, and it's very stable. It doesn't fade. It's non-toxic, which is good because other blues are made with cobalt, which Mm. is not terribly good for you. And it can be used in either oil or water, and it was approved for commercial use by the EPA in 2020. And it is a rather electric-looking blue. So who knows? Maybe it'll make its way to automobile finishes or something. I can yeah. show you. It's yeah. another one you should look up. to put some up. in the show notes. Oh, yeah. The, the images are amazing. It's very blue. <laughs> spectacular color. Yeah. That's all the blue I have. But for now, we have a glossary. So okay. pigment, small particle of color. The binder is the substance made of large molecules that binds the pigment. And the solvent is the solution that helps the paint spread better. Yes. Apparently, I'm going to talk about oxide solutions. And oxide, I mean, I know what oxides are, like ferric oxide or, or manganese oxide. Anytime you combine oxygen with where you, you burn something and, and it oxidizes. But what would an oxide solution be? Would that just be like a, a mixture of it in, in a solvent? Yeah, it must be. Okay. Yeah. And then we are actually having a cocktail party soon. So we yes. have some fun cocktail party facts that we, we should do. probably like make sure we yeah. mention. Yeah. So how old is the oldest known art? Uh, 70,000 years old. Just about, yeah. Who were the first people to make a processed blue dye, manufactured yeah. blue Those dye? Those amazing Egyptians. And what were the creators of the newest blue dye trying to do? I think they were just trying to make transistors or something. Yeah, something like materials for electronics. So thank you again for listening to this episode of Luxi. As always, many thanks to my co-host and audio engineer, Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. You can follow us all over social media at LuxiPod. Definitely give our our YouTube channel a follow since we just released a new science sip. It was pretty interesting. Check out our new website, www.erevnamedia.com. And that's E-R-E-V-N-A media.com. And subscribe so you don't miss any of that content. And your experiment this week is to go out and look around, look for some dyes, look for some pigments, and tell us what you find. Some great pigments out there. Yeah. Talk to you later.